The battle of Britain is about to begin. And the Lead Pursuit Podcast is back. Tonight, we're going to talk a little bit differently about some history. We're going to talk about Midway because we know that Andy is releasing his new Midway starter set here soon for Blood Red Skies. But what we're going to do is we're going to talk specifically about historical fiction that's been written by Kevin Miller, who's a naval aviator, A-7 pilot, F-18 pilot, squadron commander, has logged over a thousand carrier arrested landings, and he's going to be here tonight to talk both about his modern military writings and his writings about the Battle of Midway. Kevin, thanks for joining us. Great to be here, Doug. Thanks for having me. The good news is we also have Brett on because we drug him back in, even though he doesn't know how to spell naval aviation as an army ranger. <laughs> hey, everybody. Happy to be here. Always glad to pick on you, Brett. Thanks for joining us. And this really was put together by my buddy Rob over at Fights On. So, Rob, thanks for helping uh, put this together, and thanks for joining us tonight. You bet. Thanks. So, Kevin, after three great Raven books, then you write Silver Waterfall. So the question is, what led you to choose Midway? as historical fiction. Midway is, uh, I, I think, everyone in, in the naval aviation, maybe aviation, just is just fascinated by the story. I mean, this is a battle that, that we were not supposed to win, that the Japanese put to sea 200 ships of the combined fleet, and we mustered 27 ships. And uh, uh, all of our battleships were, uh, were, were not able to, to fight, many of them resting on the bottom of Pearl Harbor still. Um, and, and battleships were, uh, were still a, a main capital ship in the way that, that navies uh, thought they, they would fight each other. And, and at Midway, uh, the, the Japanese put too much credence in that philosophy. But uh, it is a, is a battle that I've lectured on for years, and uh, I, I was fascinated by the, the command and control aspects of it. Uh, we, we think of uh, Nimitz and Spruance and and uh, McCluskey and, and, you know, Waldron, these guys are mythical figures, you know, and, and they, you know, they did great deeds and they did, but they, they were flawed men as we all are. And, and so I, I wanted to, to write the, the story of Midway with, uh, in the historical fiction construct, uh, you know, showing the emotion, showing the, uh, uh, the, the, the uncertainty uh, of, of, of these uh, of these real men who lived, I didn't change any facts, and, and all the, the characters are real real men who fought it. And uh, it is a story that I, I felt needed to be told, uh, just as uh, Michael Scherer wrote the Killer Angels about the Battle of Gettysburg. You know, without you know, you can study the set piece movements of the armies. Okay, got it. But when you read historical fiction like Scherer, you're, you're there. And now you can get inside the uh, Longstreet and Lee and, and, and their arguments about what they should do next. And, and I find it all fascinating. So it was a, a labor of love to write. I definitely felt that way. You brought me into the cockpit uh, and the bridge of the Akagi 
uh, with Nagumo and his staff and uh, Spruance's uh, flag bridge. That, that was just awesome. Did you have this story in you for a long time, or is this truly a project you started kind of after Raven series? After I finished Fight Fight, uh, you know, Flip went on shore duty, so so Flip's getting a uh, getting a break. He's probably in the Pentagon hating his life, to tell you the truth. But, <laughs> that but, wouldn't make a good novel. No. <laughs> Commuting on uh, 395. Although I, I sure there's, there's there's plenty of drama in there. Yeah, I was but, about to uh, say there's plenty of drama and there's all kinds of politics, so it, oh, it'd make gosh. a great reality TV yes. show. Oh wait, did I say that? Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, but it, I, I'm glad that I wrote the Silver Waterfall when I did after I wrote the first three. And you know, you you learn things, of course, every time you 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 do a project and you get uh, in in theory you you get better and. Uh, it's a, uh, a novel, though, that I did a lot of research for. And so uh, I'm fortunate that I live in Pensacola, and just just down the street is the National Naval Aviation Museum. And in that museum is the Emil Bueller Reference Library. And uh, there, there's plenty of books that, that, that you've read that are very you know, commonly known on Midway. They're all there. But what is also there in the archives are uh, the, the, the Bombing Six After Action Report written by Lieutenant Best uh, and uh, in his flight logs, the official Marine Corps uh, narrative of the battle, and uh, which, which they, they, they claim that they got some hits on the morning of June 4th. Now, now history has, has proven that's not the case. This is not to say that, and, and, and even uh, the Bombing Six report is inaccurate. There's a lot of inaccuracies that those that fought the battle a day or two removed you know that, that's what they thought. They thought they had they had hit that ship, and they thought this had happened, and it, it hadn't. And then decades later, we, we know it hadn't through through all the, the sources and and ships log books and what have you. But it's an interesting uh, study in, of of human nature. This is this is what we thought happened. I mean, there's there's stories of uh, I saw the squadron turn right, and another young man in the same formation swears the squadron turned left. And it's, 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 it was really fascinating for me to, to learn so much more about the battle that I didn't know. Yeah, I think that's one of the interesting parts, as we've talked on the podcast before about history, that there's there's the official story you tell, there's the story that you think happened, and then there's beyond that what really happened. And and that so many times there's, there's conflicting perceptions, conflicting remembrances of it. And I'll be quite honest, I don't think I ever filed an accurate combat sit rep because we didn't remember everything we did until maybe even hours and, and days later. Uh, but the, the fascinating compilation of all that makes a narrative that to me is larger than just the reading of the history. Uh, because I'll be honest, uh, being obviously from Naval Aviation as a, as a Marine F-18 Wizzo, think I'd probably studied midway till I was blue in the face. Uh, but there's always a, for me, it's much more relatable to read it as historical fiction. And I can suddenly step back and I can think, okay, what were the command decisions? What were the individual flight lead decisions? What were the things the aviators did rather than kind of the overarching strategy that may or may not have been present for the U.S. Navy or the IJN at, at either time uh, that, that really drove us to a conclusion as it ended up Instead of of us concentrating, you know, on, on was it the big picture? Was it the individual actions and and the individual so often gets left out, which which really leads me into my next question because having read Raven One and knowing that you're a, a attack air 
background individual. It's obvious in your writing because because I laugh when I read it. I, I can imagine some of those uh, those editors looking at it going, "What is all this aviation speak? What, what does he mean by this?" And and thankfully for me, I read Silver Waterfall before I read Raven One, so I knew that some of it was going to be there. But did you find yourself in Silver Waterfall having to try to decide? What was how you remember dive bombing and and modern, I will call modern jet tactics versus maybe some of the things they had to do differently. And so you had to explain in more detail because it wasn't in your mind. I, I researched how they did it. And, you know, did did the did the SBD uh, uh, did it? You know, we, we've seen newsreel images of the formation of, of, of World War II airplanes. Let's say that they're SBD losses and. And uh, the first will peel off, and the second, and they all peel off gracefully up and down, and it really looks great for the camera. But uh, in my research, no, they didn't do that. The, there, there would be a, a flight of three, the lead in front, and wingman on either side, or maybe they'd be kind of in, in trail, maybe. Um, and then uh, dive brakes open up, so they, they, they all slow down, and then the lead would just kind of kind of pull across the horizon, kick bottom rudder, roll, and, and just very violently pull his airplane down. So he would just go. And then two would follow and, and three would follow, maybe you know, one potato, two potato. And, and uh, so they would each be in their, in their individual runs. Um, certainly with, with my background in, in tactical aviation, um, you know, diving on, on something and, and tracking a target and, and then, you know, pickling and, uh, you know, weapon release and then, you know, feeling the bomb come off all and, and then and then the pull off all familiar sensations. But these guys would roll into a 90 degree dive and they're they're They didn't have shoulder harnesses. All they had was a seatbelt. So they're kind of hanging off the seat. They're at idle power. They're, you know, the speed brakes, the dive brakes are open and uh, you know, the wind whistling past the uh, the open canopy. And so they're tracking this target on the water, and the the uh, the gunner and back is turned around facing front, and he is calling off altitudes as, as a pilot's tracking. And in, in my research, I found out that it would be every 1,000 feet until 4,000 feet, and then it'd be 39, 38, 37, 36, all the way down, <laughs> all the way down to 2,000 feet. And that is where the pilot should pickle uh, and then again, a familiar feeling—you you can feel the bomb come off the airplane, which is a great feeling. Uh, but then you know you're—and and by now the airplane is at 70 degrees as it as it you know with, with the uh, uh, the air pressure across the wing. So the bomb comes off at 70 degrees. Now in in my career, we would roll in the steepest would be uh, you know somewhere around 50 degrees, and the bomb would come off a little bit more shallow than that. But but never anything approaching 70. Much less an initial ninety on the roll-in, and uh, so so these guys would would pull off, and then they put nine to ten G's on their body unaided. There's no G suits back yeah, that, in those days. I, I was laughing about that because that's just something that that you know, at least you and I have a frame of reference to. And I'd sit there and I go, no wonder they suddenly woke up and they either hit, had hit the water or they were level because there's just there's just no way without augmentation anyone is going to do that over and over and over again and always keep conscious. <laughs> it's just you, amazing. You know, they, they may have been conscious, but their, their, their vision is, as yeah, we know. Yeah, it was a soda straw. Was, it, was, it was a soda straw and, <laughs> and maybe maybe black for a few seconds until yep. they, they, they had to let off. And, and now they got to fight their way out of that. So, And and at that time, the, the gunner is whipping around in his seat 
and uh, and start shooting at uh, the bad guys that are shooting at them. So uh, I I learned a lot, and uh, and 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 I wanted to to get to get all those details right. You know, you talk about the the detail, and and, and in Raven One. Um, it is absolutely immersive. All the jargon and acronyms. I mean, we, we'd fall apart without them, wouldn't we? But uh, in, in my next two books, I, I I I cracked them back about a quarter turn to uh, to make okay maybe a little bit more English. Yep. And yep. and uh, but but still, you know, you, as a reader, you got to hang on. I mean, you know, this is immersive and this is the real thing. Um, in, in the Silver Waterfall, um, there's there's less jargon. Uh, than in my, my previous books, but I think I got the, the right amount. Uh, but but certainly the, the reader has has just got to hang on. The reader may not know what he or she is reading, but but it probably puts them in in the what's the word puts them there. Uh, they they can imagine themselves. Yeah, whatever whatever that uh, whatever nine G's means, it must really hurt. Yeah, exactly. Well, I, I just laugh anytime I read any naval history. There's historical fiction that uses deck, bulkhead, and ladder well and doesn't explain it to the uh, the poor reader who <laughs> doesn't have a background in you know, naval they're, terminology they're just gonna like have to, Yeah, they're just going to have to figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. No, that's good. And and for me, that it didn't break the wall between me as, as a reader and you as the author. I didn't feel like I was being talked down to or explained things to. And so it it made it much more enjoyable for me to read Silver Waterfall because I was able to sit there and say, okay, I, I know these things. I can envision in my mind what the entire, you know, inside of these ships and, and all these things are like. I can now concentrate on just paying attention to the characters because for me going through Silver Waterfall, not having read Shattered Sword, I know that's terrible, horrible person that I am. Uh, it was It was an ability to say, I don't want to concentrate on is it a true or false historical assumption? I just want to read the story and see see where the action is and see what is different than my own, and I'll call it a, a cultural memory, the, the Navy Marine Corps cultural memory uh, of Midway. And and that's what I really enjoyed. So you, you there's a little bit of dispelling uh, myth and rumor, and then there's characters you see that you're like, yeah, I always kind of assumed that guy was a jerk, but wow, he really is a jerk in this writing. <laughs> You gotta, you know, the, the historic record. Uh, it, it can be quite brutal in, in, in the case of, uh, of some personalities. Yes. Well, so how did you how did you pick and choose? I mean, there obviously, if you're going to write historical fiction, there generally has to be a little bit of a villain, and you're you're always going to probably magnify in your um, invented discussion or interaction. You're gonna you're gonna have to magnify things for the readers because they may not catch up on the nuances that another aviator, another staff officer would have said, oh, that was the critical, you know, failing decision, or that was, that was a really bad, uh, bad recommendation to the commander. How did you, how did you decide to do those things? Reading the historic record, uh, and, and there's, you know, I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about some of the just outstanding narrative nonfiction there is on, on Midway, uh, dozens of books. And, uh, so you, you read it and, uh, okay, uh, Miles Browning, Captain Browning, and uh, you know he's got a reputation, so everything I read <laughs> that, that reputation is, is is true. I mean, he okay, he was a, a brilliant naval aviation planner. Uh, although the uh, case can be made, uh, there was underperformance uh, in June 1942 and, and cataloged elsewhere. Um, that, that's one example. Uh, Frank Jack Fletcher, 
uh, who who technically was the victor at Midway. He was a senior officer present. He was in in command of the two task forces, but but everyone considers Bruins the victor. And right. and there's a there's a there, there's Navy politics about that. Um, so uh, try try to treat them fairly, but uh, you have to stay with uh, with with uh, historic record. There there is the, uh, the the famous scene on uh, June fifth where uh, Wade McCluskey you know comes out of sick bay and storms up to the flag bridge and, and demands that his pilots not fly at extreme range with a thousand pound bomb and and uh, that that shouting match happened there's no record of what was said so i invented it and uh i i, I think i'm i'm maybe i got it close to right with, with what uh, each side uh, you know in this case browning and mccluskey would would be uh, saying to each other but we we all know at the end of that shouting match that spruins turned to mccluskey and said i will do what you pilots want and then we also know that that browning humiliated you know, he, he went down to the bridge and, and he, he raged and then he went to his stateroom and sulked, you know, during during the course of the battle, you know, you know, leaving his post, if you will. And then, then the next day he, he recovered and, and, and went on. Well, I, I'm glad you, you talk about that scene because it probably is one of my favorites of the staff officer to operator interaction. And and Brett knows this about me. It's one of the funniest things of going between, you know, being a, a squadron aviator, being a weapons school instructor, being a a staff planner and staff officer uh, in Afghanistan. It is funny how many times the the critical decisions aren't made by somebody in a dark bunker with the lights on, you know, moving little little pieces around a board or it isn't that always that critical piece of intel that they ran up to the bridge and said here you go, sir. Here's here's exactly where the enemy fleet is. It's that personal interaction of a operational decision that that a staff has teed up that they think they know what should be done, and the people who actually have to go execute go, no, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. That goes against everything we're going to do. Why why would we do that? Besides to make you all look better. <laughs> you know, there, there's there's amid the fog of war, which was very thick. It's always thick. But but in that fog of war, there is ego and jealousy. No, and, no, there's not. And, Everybody and, gets yeah. along great, and we all love each other in the military, and we're all on the same team. Oh wait, yeah, oh yeah. There's a lot of ego. <laughs> and, you know, and, and those things those things don't change. And and uh, you know, I've, I'm also uh, and I I enjoy doing this. And I, I did this uh, a little bit in Rave One, but a lot in Declared Hostile and Fight Fight, where I get into characters on the other side. And, and what they're thinking, what they're thinking about the Americans and, and, and their, their next moves. And, and uh, you know, th- this is all a human activity. And, uh, yeah, yes, enemies are, you know, we, we, know, we know deep down that they're humans like us. Um, we, they, they are our mortal enemies when we're fighting them. But, uh, you know, they have, they have emotions too and, and they're not sure what's going on. And, and, and they, don't, they, they want to minimize their losses and, and maximize their, their, uh, their blows. Um, anyway, all human activity. Well, and I think that's the, the beauty of a lot of the historical fiction that isn't written these days, that has been written off and on, but, but I don't think we do near as much, is we don't explore our enemy's motivations and, and why our enemy does what they do. It's, it's very easy to paint them as either uh, bumbling incompetents who are just lucky to find a target out there or as some 
you know, uh, you know horrible, um, you know, scheming, vastly, uh, you know, uh, far more, um, what I want to say, uh, evil empire than they sometimes are, where they're just other people trying to fight for what they think is is their way of life, whether it agrees with our values and our uh, global viewpoint. Um, but but so often that's minimized, and I really enjoyed reading. Silver Waterfall and not feeling like I was reading stereotypes um, because so often I do and, I, and I'll be honest I get frustrated with especially a lot of the Vietnam era uh, historical fiction where I'm, I'm reading it to, to kind of get a, a feeling of some of the aviation piece but it the the enemy is just a brutal unthinking you know conniving uh, you know cutout not not a real human person um, whereas I, I didn't feel that at all with Silver Waterfall so I, I enjoyed that. The, the Japanese uh, thought the Americans were were uh, were cowards, were were were, uh, were idiots. Uh, you know, big noses, red faces. I mean, there, there, there's certainly racism. You know, all, all over the world. Oh, absolutely. Um, but yeah, the, the Japanese had had not been paying attention to the Americans. You know, after Pearl Harbor, the Americans in February of 1942 were were attacking their Central Pacific outposts, and in April of 1942, attacked Japan, and and then in May, uh, you know, met them and, and turned them back in the Coral Sea. But still, in in the first week of June 1942, they thought that the Americans were cowards. The Americans would not come out of Pearl Harbor to face them off Midway, uh, and if they did, they they were idiots, and and it would be short work. They had the Japanese had not learned. They had not paid attention. They they believed their own press. When when all the evidence was shown, hey, you know, these guys really want to fight you, right? So how how did that influence their post-war writing, and and was it so much a reaction against that of people trying to clear their name and now say, uh, no, the Americans weren't idiots, and and we in fact were the idiots, or how how does this uh, controversy really happen where all of a sudden we've got sources that we now discount, you know, forty fifty yes. years later? Yes, uh, Mitsuo Fushida. Was uh, was a group commander at the Pearl Harbor raid, and and he would have uh, probably led the attack on Midway had he not come down with an appendicitis days before the battle. So but he was there in his bathrobe uh, on the on the bridge of Akagi, you know, part of the the brain trust of the of the first air fleet. Um, so he survives the war, and uh, but of course in in the, in the years after Midway. He was tasked to write an after-action report. So the Japanese, okay, we, we need to learn some lessons, and they and they learned some lessons. Uh, they they just could not deal with the the steel avalanche that fell on them, you know, from the arsenal of democracy. Uh, well, well, there's the problem of, of the yeah. inevitability. You you fought the American economy at that point, and when yeah. we made as many tanks in one month as the Germans cranked out in an entire year in 1943, you're not going to win. <laughs> it's just exactly. not going to happen. Exactly. So, so after World War II, you know, Japanese, you know, took a took a serious look in, inside of themselves. So, okay, so we we are not as great as we thought. I mean, what they had accomplished, you know, when Commodore Perry visited them in the 1850s, and 50 years after that, they defeat a Western power, Russia, you know, with with, with a Western navy. I mean, defeated them bad, and then you know, t took on the United States, and but then. And then crush, you know. So, so from a feudal warlord society to to toe to toe competitor with the United States in in one human lifetime is just an incredible achievement by their, their society. 
but they, they they looked inward and said, okay, we're, you know, we we are a people that that, uh, you know, we we, we got to stop believing our own press and we, we got to you know, you know, be more frank with ourselves and and, and not uh, you know have this wishful thinking, thinking that that our spirit is going to defeat the enemies. That's not going to work. But uh, but Fushida said. In, uh, in, in, and I suggested that everyone read, read his uh, book, the Midway of the Battle that Doomed Japan. It's, it's great reading. But he said that, you know, we had four carrier decks full of airplanes that are all warmed up engines, all the pilots are in there loaded, and we're just turning into the wind to launch, and here come the Americans. We were so close. And that's not true. Uh, what was true, and, and, and Parshall and Tully found this out. And how did they do it? They went to Japan and they found the logbook of Akagi. Which which shows exactly you know the, the launch and recoveries that, that that survived that was saved, and uh, what really happened on Akagi was that there was three zeros on the flight deck that that were taking off just as as best Krager and Weber were, were diving on it. Those are the only three airplanes on Akagi's flight deck. They were nowhere near ready to launch a strike against the Americans, and and what what that strike needed to have been launched two hours earlier. And they, 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 you know, two hours before the Americans showed up overhead, uh, it was too late for Japan. Yeah, I think there's an interesting inevitability in in the Battle of Midway that for so many years was not brought out. And it's it's the difference between disciplined, you know, lockstep kind of attacks versus, <laughs> as we always in the American way of war, we're just going to figure it out when we get there and what was supposed to be massive waves launched together becomes, you know, uh, defense in depth in a sense, because we launch everybody on different timelines. But but in some in some ways, our disorganization proves to, to work out well, um, because it exposes the rigidity of other nations, um, uh, their, their ways of war. And the problem is, to, to answer that, then they have to admit we we weren't prepared because they weren't. They, as we talk about the aircraft, had they had they been following their own doctrine, had they been listening to to the reports, there would have been a, a much different set of uh, a much different set of decisions made. And I think that's one of the interesting leadership parts that you really bring out in the book. It was Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld that said uh, almost twenty years ago, "You go to war with the army you have, not the army." You wish you had. Exactly. And and, and Good old Rummy. Oh. And 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 he and he was vilified for that. But but he spoke the truth. But it was and, true. And it's true. Yeah. And it's... that's, that's <laughs> that was that was true in 1941, 42, uh, and it's true today. Quite frankly, I mean, you know, we were, you know we're, we were facing another uh, pure comp- competitor in the in the Pacific, and uh, and. If war comes, it's going to be fought with what we have. There's not going to be any, you know, arsenal of democracy that's going to, you know, build 12 nuclear-powered aircraft carriers in three years. Uh, this is as we had, you know, 12 oh, class ships, and and we had all of our light carriers, and don't even talk about the dozens of escort carriers and battleships and cruisers. All, you know, all of that steel that we talked about earlier, it, it's it's not going to happen. Uh, not going to happen right away. So um, the. Uh, but yes, the, the Americans were new. Um, Hornet was a brand new ship. Hornet had been in commission for for eight months, and and the air wing largely unproven. You know, they they had uh, a little bit of training in in the Caribbean, and then they they delivered the Doolittle Raiders, and, and and they couldn't fly the air wing, and they had maybe maybe a week of of training, and then the big one at Midway, 
Well, and, and that's that's what I really harp on for a lot of people who think about air wings and and Brett and I were even talking about about ranks of individuals in these air wings. Normally, you think of an air wing that is trained and fought together and may have some replacements in there. So there may be squadron commanders or flight leaders that are that are of junior rank. And then you end up with Hornet's air wing that pretty much met everybody on the deck. I mean, they, they met everybody in Pearl and then flew out to the ship. And that's about the the level of execution together that they got. And um, the at least the American way of war, we're used to that pickup game. We're used to figuring yes. that out. Yes. So they, we did the best we could, and uh, you know, radios of the day were, were awful. Um, so and you know, we, we're so used to all the toys that we have. I mean, we have we have GPS or INS navigation, and we've got radios, and we've got just situational awareness that that they could only have dreamed about in, in those days. So can you know? But but even today. You know, we're going to have you know 25, 30 airplanes and a big gorilla, and and there can be little hiccups even today, and nowhere near the the magnified hiccups that we that we saw in in this battle, uh, where, where squatters just going off on their own and, and and you know either not finding the enemy or okay hey here we are where's our where's our escort you know come on down and, and help us and they're not there uh, again the the the, the radio coordination, timing, there was a lot against the Americans that morning, and, and it was through uh, d- determination that there was a lot of luck that, that, uh, that the attacks, you know, hit the, the, uh, the mobile force when they did, and then the, the determination of, uh, of, of one man, Wade McCluskey, and, and also Max Leslie, who, who lost his bomb on the way to the Japanese. You know, he arms his bomb and it falls off the airplane. You know, using a you know using a, a newfangled electric arming method instead of just you know reaching down and, and and doing it mechanically the way he had done it all those years, and so imagine that frustration. And he almost turned back and said, "No, I got to keep going." Um, but you're you're right. I mean, it's 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 American uh, determination and, and and grit. And 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 I say American. You know, other other you know nations have that too. But but it is a a feature I believe of of our people. Well, I think it's it's part of the American psyche, and it comes from being a frontier nation. We, and you know, we we can all debate until the cows come home, literally. <laughs> uh, what what is the dominant psyche of America? But I think at that time there was still so much of a frontier, rural, uh, hands-on kind of mentality. People were used to making do, having come out of the depression, and more importantly, they were used to. Well, we're just going to keep pressing. We're going we're gonna to fight through this and we're going to figure out. And I, I still laugh thinking, you know, at Midway, we had electric arming mechanisms in, you know, Vietnam. We had electric fuses that didn't work. You know, it's, it's interesting how many times gremlins are the thing that jump up in the in the American war narrative. And America's like, huh, well, whatever, we'll figure it out. I guess we're strafing today instead of bombing. <laughs> and and I, I, you know, Will there be battles in, in the future of humanity and in our country? And, and probably yes. And and we're probably going to learn of, of, of glitches. And they're, they're, they're oh, yeah. going to happen. Absolutely. It's, just, it's just part of it. Well, and we've seen it with, with aircraft, whether it's the F-22 and the ones and zeros being in the wrong spot, such that when they left Hawaii and went on towards Wake Island, suddenly they, they couldn't cross the international date line uh, because their nav system wasn't you know properly configured. So they had to turn around and get a quick software fix and uh, go out 
uh, a couple weeks later. You know, there's there's always going to be interesting things as you marry technology with the human element of combat. And, and how do you deal with that? When do you say, all right, I don't care about all this gear you've put in the airplane. And my goal is to put a weapon into another enemy fighter or onto enemy targets. Uh, I will do that uh, to the best of my ability without even all the fancy equipment. I think that's that's always something that's interesting, which, as you kind of alluded to, is a difference than that country that people and I like to laugh about. I refer to them as the paper dragon um, because there's there's a very different mindset. And I'll, I'll be honest, I haven't read some of your later books, so I don't see how you I haven't seen how you handle them. But there's a there's a difference in in operational mindset, I think, between so many countries. And it's it's fascinating to read it in people's uh, fictional writing as to how how countries troubleshoot through things and and how do they decide, are we going to turn the strike back or not? Do we have we've, we've lost 30 percent of our bombs. Hey, maybe it's time to go home, you know, and, and other countries would make different decisions. You, you have not read it yet, uh, but, no, uh, <laughs> but but you have but you have touched on uh, an aspect of fight fight, which is my uh, fictional account of what's going to happen in the Western Pacific. And, uh, you know, the United States. Uh, you know, everyone in uniform, certainly everyone that is, that is flying a military aircraft has a very high degree of training. And, and that's, that's not always the case for, for, uh, for foreign air forces. Absolutely. And there, there, there might be a very, you know, there, there might be elite squadrons and squadrons that are just kind of, kind of there and they, that they fly around and call it training. And, uh, you know, that's, that's not going to be good enough. <laughs> well, and that's that's something that's fascinating as we step from the historical account into kind of the wargaming piece of it is how do you simulate equitably without, you know, penalizing people for wanting to play a nation that may not have had the, the finest Air Force out there? How, how do you allow them to, to kind of explore the history and say, uh, okay, it, it, either this phase of the Second World War, this phase of modern, modern era, uh, I may have really good airplanes, but I don't have good pilots. I know Brett and I have laughed about every time you have to play late war Japanese, you're like, well, I'm pretty much guaranteed I won't have any aces left. <laughs> I'm pretty much guaranteed I won't have uh, you know high quality pilots, but you still, at least when you step into the war game arena, while you can, you can check that box and say, I'm going to be historically accurate, um, sometimes it's tough because you have to make it fun. And it's it's kind of like reading a novel. It's uh, if the enemy's a pushover in the novel, it's not that exciting of a thriller. <laughs> there has to be something going on. There's a, there's a great place for wargaming, and 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 wargaming is, is is fiction. And you know what if what if uh, what if we did this? What if they react this way? I, I was uh, at the war college uh, right before I did my penance in the Pentagon. Uh, we did a war game and it lasted three weeks and, and it, it was it was fun to play it was uh, it was kind of like we were there now we were obviously in a classroom setting a, a staff setting but uh, but you think hey you know what you know here's what we're gonna do oh here's 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 what they did that, that didn't expect that now, yeah, now, I, now we have to deal with it absolutely well that was one of the fascinating things that uh, Mitch from the no dice no glory podcast and I talked with uh, Liz over on Beyond Solitaire about military wargaming and how it varies by service and then varies with the level you're at. If there's, you know, it can be as simple as what are your kill removal rules and your your rules in air to air for how do you simulate uh, the the actual day-to-day probability of kill of your missiles versus going to something like the War College where it may, it might even be a fairly non-kinetic kind of war game you're playing. Because a lot of times what we found at least in the in the later years of the War College era is the tough part isn't necessarily coming up with a plan that will survive first contact with the enemy. It's 
how, what's my plan that's going to survive first contact with all my other governmental agencies? Because now so much of our fight is working with Department of State, FBI, you know, other governmental agencies. And how do I make a plan they're going to sign off on? <laughs> and, and this is also something that, uh, that you'll see in Fight Fight, which is a modern conflict in the information era to include the disinformation era. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because it's, you know, it's an interesting thing we don't always take into account is that there were so many decisions in World War II that were made either on open source reporting on or on very cursory spy accounts and entire raids launched on airfields that didn't exist or raids that turned back because their bombardiers looked at they're like, ah, no, all I see is a bunch of fields. Well, we ran out some conveniently blue and uh, brown uh, felt out there and, and made the uh, the runway strip look more like a field uh, and it had a lot of effect. A bodyguard of lies. Tie yeah, that right exactly. back to Midway. The U.S. Army Air Corps took credit for it. Yes, they did. And, uh, Everybody and, in Hawaii and, thought the Army won the battle. I, I, I like to joke uh, that uh, yes, the Army, Air, the Army Air Force uh, did take credit for uh, for sinking the Japanese fleet at Midway. And we have to remember that four years later, it was a five years later, they became the United States Air Force. Yeah, there there are always political reasons behind all that, and you know, I, and I've uh, picked on my Navy brethren a lot as we talk about the paper dragon. That uh, if if it's truly a paper dragon, you don't have a reason to buy uh, more ships and and more airplanes and more over the horizon capability. Uh, but there there always is an interesting dynamic, especially in the Second World War, uh, and then even more so into Korea when you get into it, of kind of decomposing some of this inner service rivalry that's in the historical accounts and. It was funny to me because I, growing up as, you know, in a sense, I'll, I'll say a naval aviation baby, uh, having graduated from a small uh, public college on the Severn River in Annapolis uh, <laughs> and and gone on to be in, in Marine Corps aviation, I'd never heard the Army take credit for it. And then when I started reading the accounts, I'm like, who are these guys and who do they think they are thinking they won the battle? <laughs> you know, uh, they... Uh... You know, the, the B-17s and, uh, and the B-26s uh, gave a good account of themselves. I mean, the B-17s, you know, disrupted the, the, the fleet maneuvers. You know, the ships have to, have to, you know, turn to avoid the attacks. And when the ship's healing hard, you know, it's hard to, to run elevators. It's hard to load a 2,000-pound weapon onto an airplane in the hangar bay. Uh, the B-26, though, those guys, you know, they, they went right at Akagi. And, and uh, there, there's an account in the Silver Waterfall pretty pretty eye-opening and uh that actually happened i mean uh you know these guys were, were carrying torpedoes that and and they had no training on how to deliver them uh the night before uh, american pby uh patrol planes flying boats uh they, they rigged a torpedo to one and, and dropped it on a on a japanese ship and it hit it and went off i mean that was uh, and that was the only uh successful american torpedo attack of the battle Brett, uh, so, does that sound pretty familiar to what you're used to, at least from the uh, the Malta side? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think there's there's an interesting piece for the converted uh, bombers suddenly becoming torpedo bombers, and and even the the piece of of how level bombing attacks can influence a ship, because so many times you know we years later have seen the the footage from after the fact where it seems so easy for the ship to be down there dodging these attacks from, you know, 15,000 feet or so. Uh, but when you're on that ship that's healing over, you're not getting a whole lot done. You're, you're not 
necessarily firing your deck guns or like say loading loading ordnance on aircraft you're you're fighting for your own survival yes and uh you know we we, we uh, we're all familiar with the term you must honor the threat so you know they they had to they had to react to it they really didn't didn't have a choice that uh, that that the army b-17s missed it should be no surprise to anyone they're, they're not designed for that I mean you know even the you know they would mass you know 100 300 bombers to hit a place like Schweinfurt and uh, and, and not every bomb is going to hit the target but it's you know certainly damage is going to be done well Brett I think that's an interesting discussion on our side for how much we you know we've seen how it plays out in blood red skies and, and with the airstrike rules uh, playing out level bombing versus ships but there really doesn't seem to be much um, much counteraction on the ship side because I think you'd say from when you used your JU-88s level bombing uh, or even your JU-87s dive bombing against the ship it was you know just I, I basically was able to ignore you it wasn't that I had to either give up the ability to shoot flak or anything else like that yeah that's right any that any that were doing level bombing or even dive bombing were virtually no effect and probably the best effect they had was just maybe a a temporary distraction for your fighter force or something to uh, maybe provide a screen, if you will, for those uh, those bombers that were equipped with the uh, torpedoes. Yeah, because I, I think that was, at least for our thought process, was the way the rules were written, that was the percentage threat. So um, not really care about the level bombers, the dive bombers. Let them Let them have their fun. I have to take out the torpedo bombers. Which is kind of interesting when you compare that to the Midway account and you realize, okay, the torpedo bombers did get taken out. And, and even when they did deliver, they were fairly ineffective. Um, but it became the dive bombers that really, really, in the sense, got the hits that were required uh, to, to sink the carriers. It was dive bombers that accounted for the, uh, the highest amount of uh, Japanese naval tonnage in World War II. And, and you would think, really? Not, not submarines? Um, and, and submarines obviously did did great work, but as far as, as warships tonnage, it was dive bombers. And so when you think about it, I mean, you know, four carriers in Midway and other other you know Coral Sea and the Solomon's fights and and, and elsewhere. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it does make sense that it was it was dive bombers that that, uh, that that put those ships on the bottom. Absolutely, and that's one of the tough things as a as a game designer and and setting up the tournaments for these games and doing all those things is to is to play inside the rules you're handed um but also to make sure that uh it's enjoyable for people and i know brett and and i've talked to andy about the upcoming midway release and the fact that uh you, you have to kind of make the scenarios a little bit fun and unfortunately the midway narrative doesn't necessarily have any of the vts uh winning the day with torpedoes uh, but you still have to put a scenario in there so you can say okay w- what if let's let's see you know, let's let's see what happened. At, at Coral Sea, the American torpedo planes uh, had had some success on, on the first day of the battle yep. against the, the carrier Shoho. Uh, the second day, not so much, but they they weren't annihilated uh, like they were at Midway. They uh, there was better coordination at, at at Coral Sea. All right, but uh, you know there was uh, and. and there was not that coordination at Midway, so they they knew that they were flying rattle traps and and gosh, we sure wish we had that that new Grumman, but this is what we have and you know and and 
they, they were frank about it in the ready room. Uh, you know, squadron COs, yeah, I think the first wave, you know, maybe half of us will be shot down. Imagine being in a ready room and, and, and hearing that. And then imagine being in BT-8 and then Skipper Waldron gives you this letter, this mimeographed letter that he wrote that, that says, you know, if there is only one of you guys left, I want you to go in and get a hit. Only one of us? Yeah, that's yeah, just, just, that's pretty uh, sobering. You you, yeah. you just don't have that frame of reference in naval aviation we, we, anymore. Not so. not anymore. And and uh, uh, yet they went. Yeah, and, absolutely. And, which is yeah, which is and, truly amazing. It's you know it's and it's interesting. I know uh, we've talked about the historical record uh, a number of times and, and said it's it's easy for us to look back and go, wow, holy cow, they all got shot down, and I can't, I can't can't believe one guy got picked up out of the whole squadron and yet at the same time i think you did a good job of of in this in the book there's people going yeah you know i may still make it out of there i'm pretty sure the other guy's going to get hit or yeah we're gonna take some losses but maybe i'll make it through and, and that that kind of optimistic fatalism <laughs> that's in naval aviation I mean, how, how else can you approach it uh i mean yeah i, I don't I, think I there's any think- other way Sure. Kevin, and, uh, in your go, go in your research on the torpedo bombers, were you able to find some good, you know, doctrine or or the the tactics that VT eight, VT six were trained to? Because it seemed very realistic. What what they wanted to do was uh, the classic anvil attack. So you've got a squadron, you know, 14, 15 airplanes, and and you split them up. So, you know, seven go this way, eight go that way. So you, you split up the squadron, they go, and, and the target is probably going to be running away from you. So you're chasing it down. And, uh, you know, so you're, you're, you know, you're whipping the ponies at, at 110 knots and the ships are running away from you at, say, 30 knots. So it's going to take a while to get there. But if you, you know, get ahead of, of your target and then turn in on it, um, to, to you know whichever way the ship turns is probably going to take a hit that was the goal and uh, at you know at, at a thousand yards you know half a mile uh, and you have to slow to 80 knots I mean you have to go slow from 110 to 80 I mean you're already you know 110 is nothing even in 1942 110 was nothing uh, what's what's stall and, speed of a devastator you know, probably not much below 80 <laughs> uh, and and I imagine you know carrying a torpedo probably right you know, within a few knots of that. So you you, you just want to, okay, this, I'm going to slow down here. I'm going to descend to 80 feet and just want to get this thing out. And you're, and you're just tracers are everywhere. And the water is just churned white. And the gunner behind you is shooting at something. Just, it, we can only imagine uh, the, the, the fear, the sensory overload, just, just the, the, the frantic. I just, I just want to drop this thing and get out of here. But, but again, they, they, through their training, they could at least take a bearing on the target and, and get to a point to drop before they did. With Ensign Gay being the only survivor, did you call on any reports that he wrote to kind of frame your narrative? It, it's a great question. I, I read uh, I, I read his book, I, not not cover to cover, but I, I jump around you know the, the midway time, and uh, uh, he um, you know he, he's he's helpful. With uh, with his impressions of, uh, of of what the the squadron what was doing, you know that you know how else would we know that that Skipper Waldron, you know, got out on one wing, his cockpit's burning, so he's he's on one wing, he has no choice, and then you know before he crashes into the water. Now, how how true is that? And I I, I think it's true. You know, could, could it, was it exactly like that? We don't know. We we have one man who told us, one flawed human being. 
but uh, but but I, I I believe it is, and 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 that was his impression. And, and who am I or anyone to to refute it? Yeah, that was an amazing, amazing attack to read through. I like just a final comment about the characters we're talking about, the real people. The afterword that you put into uh, Silver Waterfall is great, where you give just a, a brief summary of kind of what happened to a lot of these people. I think that uh, when people read that, and, and thank you, I've, I've received compliments about that. Um, you know, that some of these guys went on to, to great careers in the military, and, and, and some lost their lives only weeks later in, in brutal, you know, industrial combat. That's World War II. Um, it, it reminds people that uh, that these were real men. These were our our grandfathers and great grandfathers. That that you know the elderly that we see at church, you know, on canes and walkers, you know, 60 years before they were really something. They were real studs, and uh, so we, we we see our 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 elderly today, and and we can we can read the afterwards of these. Of, of these uh, these young fighters and you know passing away in their 90s of, of old age various ailments and and I think it get a greater appreciation for not only them but but all the elderly in our society yeah I think it's interesting to to sit there and and talk through the dynamic as there is there unfortunately there seems to be very little middle ground for the telling of the stories that uh, so many people are are afraid that if you if if you call into account any of the history that you're somehow taking away from uh, from the heroes that are telling the story. And I, and I think there always has to be a little bit of the, we all know how sea stories are and we know we embellished our own. <laughs> that, that you sit there and you say, I, I, want to, I want to really do my best to, to get to that history. And as we've talked about, sometimes it just takes that generation to, to not be alive so you don't feel like you're insulting their legacy uh, to, to step back and say, okay, um, now, now I can take the I can take the heroic out of it, and I can deal with the human, which which the book to me does does such a great job with it. It doesn't really try to lionize a lot of these people. It just says these are some really tough human decisions made very quickly. So it's it's not like someone thinking, all right, I've only got six months to live. What am I going to do? It's someone waking up and going, tomorrow I'm probably going to die. I'm probably not going to make it through this attack. How am I going to live out my last twenty four hours? You're, you're, yes, and uh, you know. If, uh if you if you face combat, I mean, I've, I experienced combat. It was a little skirmish. I, I, I'm embarrassed as we're talking about the Battle of Midway to, to even mention, you know, you know my, you know, experience, uh, you know, way up high in the air, dropping a precision weapon, and, and not really feeling too concerned. But 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 yes, yeah, so you you think about that. Okay, you know, th- this is combat, and uh, you know, or am I am I right with God? Uh, you know, do I have I written that letter? That uh, that I have tucked away, and you know, in, in case I don't come back, that letter will be sent home. And you know, very this is emotional stuff. Uh, you you compartmentalize, but but you also uh, you, you think about that. But I also believe that that you're going to go. You 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 can't you can't not go. And uh, you you, uh, you know you you're you're just you're just in that you know everyone's going, and. Uh, Again, my my experience was nothing that those guys faced. They knew that half of them going in weren't going to make it back. Right. None, none of us have experienced that. 
you know, does will today's generation you know rise to the occasion like they did in 1942? I, I believe the answer to that question is yes. I, I think that that uh, the, the human beings in World War II were faced with these situations and and they responded. That's all they could do. And 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 the, the, their accounts are legendary. As of course, you know, we we won that that great World War. Uh, there are people doing legendary things over the skies of the Middle East, on the ground in, in Afghanistan and, and earlier uh, in Iraq, earlier in, in this century, the, the combats that, that we've had. Um, they are, you know, our, our current generation is, is just as great. Absolutely. And I think there is so much, uh, we've, we've said before, there's so much emotion in current conflict that it is tough for people, whether they are ardent fans and fanboys, fangirls of the U.S. military, uh, or they are people that that really want to step back and dissect what we've done and say, did we do we make the right decisions? There's there's so much emotion there that it's it's very difficult to be dispassionate and removed from it. Um, and, and I hope that in years hence we're able to step back and and take a look at some of those accounts because I know for the Marines that I served with in Afghanistan especially in the later years, not so much in the in the very early years, but in the 2009-2010 time frame, we had U.S. Marines who had experienced more days of direct fire combat in a six-month tour than their counterparts had experienced in all of World War II. And sure, it was not the same horror. It was not losing 10,000, 20,000 people in, in beach assaults. But when you think about the the weight that it carries on the human psyche just to be in those kind of operations day in, day out. Um, I, I agree with you. I, I think this generation has risen to the occasion. I think they've done very well. I, I jokingly laugh because I don't consider myself, I'm I'm that old guy. So I trained some of those guys out there, um, but I'm certainly not one of them. I had a, a very different experience and they, uh, they've they done well for those. Those men and women have, have definitely, um, I think, been uh, just as, as dedicated and just as amazing uh, as their World War II counterparts. What I what I will say is it is funny to me the things that are their Pearl Harbor moments. And it's just interesting is because every generation looks at things differently. My my generation had 9-11. Uh, every every generation has different different things that, that pulled it into that uh, Pearl Harbor moment. Um, and it's, I guess, as an amateur story, and it's always fascinating to me to say, what was it that tipped you over the edge to say you wanted to put on the uniform and, and do something that uh, very few other people actually actually do with their lives? I couldn't say it better. Absolutely. Well, Brett, I know uh, we've, we've kind of left you out there. Sorry, we, we're talking naval aviation. We left the, uh, the Army Ranger out there for only a couple questions. Is there uh, anything that you, in closing, wanted to cover? No, I just really appreciate it. I mean, I, I've read a lot of, of the accounts of the Battle of Midway, but I feel like still quite a novice on the subject, and I I'm really feel like I'm learning a lot, and I can't wait to dig into, uh, dig into the book. Yeah, I know, I know that'll be our problem getting ready for the release of Midway uh, and the, the Blood Red Skies Midway starter kit. We, we got more historical research to do just when we think we're done uh, researching Malta and researching Vietnam for some of the other releases. Now we're, uh, we're back at digging into the history books. <laughs> well, I can suggest as a, as a last subject, let's talk about Jimmy Thatch and the famous Thatch Weave and, and maybe ask Kevin uh, what kind of resources, uh, firsthand account did you find from Jimmy about – the development of that tactic and Doug, you and Brett can spin it to how it works in blood red sky. Jimmy Thatch, uh, you know, thought about, you know, okay, what can I do with, with my F4F wildcat, my, my barrel shaped fighter here? 
I, I can't climb as good as, as a zero. I can't turn with it. Um, uh, but I can I can go I can go in a dive pretty well. Uh, but I've uh, but I can I can take a I can take a beating. I've got a I'm flying a tough airplane. Um, so uh, so we figured all right if we are flying a beam each other in a in a uh, in a section uh, tactics. Uh, I can I can look behind my wingman and see his six, and he can look behind mine and see my six. And if someone is uh, attacking him, uh, he can turn into me. I turn into him, and I can shoot the guy off his uh, off his tail. What the Navy did very well in uh, throughout the 20s and 30s and into World War II is uh, train for high deflection gunshots, high angle off. And and today. We would say you know, that this is a you know a, a, a snapshot, uh, you know just something that 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 appears. Okay, here's a guy flying in front of me. I'll just you know hold the trigger down and 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 stitch some bullets across him. Not not so much of a of a uh, you know six o'clock, five o'clock, seven o'clock tracking shot. So 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 Thatch. Uh, so we have this this beam defense maneuver. We, we can't turn with these guys, but if we work together, when one goes on. You, I'll shoot him off. If he goes on me, then you shoot him off my tail. And and he didn't spend a whole lot of time briefing his guys on it. He uh, uh, he just kind of kind of tried it on the fly on the morning of June fourth over the mobile force. And he uh, he would he would yell to his wingman, "Hey hey wingman, you know, go out there, uh, beam me and act like a section leader." And and that was the and that was the brief. That was and, amazing. And, and yeah, and and uh, and then the guy would would, would figure it out, and uh, hey, that this works pretty cool. And so uh, the Japanese that fought fighting three from Yorktown, they had not experienced Americans fighting like that before. Typically, Americans would just they would they would maneuver the best they could and and uh, bleed all their airspeed and get shot. I mean that that's what the Japanese expected would always happen. But these guys fought differently uh, with uh, with Jimmy Thatch and his famous Thatch weave. And so after the battle, did did Thatch push that into the fighter doctrine and and propagate that information? Yes, he did. And uh, so he got shore duty as an instructor at Naval Air Station Jacksonville, and uh, so he, he he taught that. And then, you know, the, the word the word gets around. Hey, do you hear what what Jimmy Thatch did or or is doing down in Jacksonville? Yeah, we, we should you know hear the guys on the let's say the new carrier Bunker Hill. Let's pick a carrier. Yeah, we, we should we should uh, fight our, our Hellcats using that tactic. That makes a lot of sense. So, uh, you know, the word the word got out uh, through the, the good old fashioned networking of the day. Uh, nothing like uh, the uh, you know the the, the chat and uh, and all the, the social media that JOs have today to do that. <laughs> so to translate that into the tabletop game, is it an ideal spacing to be about two turn radiuses away from each other? Well, so unfortunately, with Blood Red Skies, and I'm sure Andy Chambers, the game designer, will throw a spear back at me via email as soon as he listens to this episode. Uh, one of the things that it supports poorly is the 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 turn radius and, and the amount of time. Um, so what we often find is rather than being, as you say, two, two turn radii out there being uh, approximately in this game, that would be about 13 inches apart. You're not going to do that. Uh, what you're going to do is you're going to give the enemy the same horns of the vadilima, as we would call it. You're going to set up your aircraft probably about five inches apart, and you're going to stagger them as well because just limitations of the game. Uh, it's it's tough to very quickly turn in on somebody else unless as 
as Brett will remind you, unless you're a cheater that flies a zero or a Spitfire and has the tight turn trait. Uh, so I, I did laugh as, as Kevin refers to their tight turning ability. Uh, it's, it's, it is pretty amazing in the game. Uh, and so, so what you'll do is you'll stagger your flight so that you, you make the enemy choose. If he's going to pitch at one uh, of your fighters, your other one can turn in and can take a, a deflection shot on him. But Kevin really hits on something that's interesting that is not simulated well in Blood Red Skies, and that is the ability of air forces to train to high deflection shooting. It's generally, once again, our game designer is from the UK, it is seen as a skill that certain aces had. And so you've obviously got Beerling, who was one of the, probably the, the best, uh, at least self-aggrandized, uh, deflection shooters in, in history um, because he practiced it. He, he thought it through. He visualized how to shoot high-angle high deflection shots. Um, but until you get to Thatch kind of shepherding uh, some of his younger pilots around, you don't have people taking those shots very successfully. And, and Blood Red Skies doesn't necessarily simulate that always well um so so it can kind of be frustrating could be a new doctrine chart or doctrine card dropped at the launch i agree so that's as brett as you and i've talked about one of the weird things is we have quote-unquote doctrine cards but we don't so much have tactics cards and and so that's it's kind of another level of of flavor and chrome and everything inside a, a board game like that where you say I realize that as the allies, this is how I'm supposed to fight in these formations and these other things, but I just need something that differentiates fighting three from any other squadron out there. Or uh, if you're looking at Malta, that's going to differentiate what Burling and his compatriots talked about uh, in between missions where they said, you know what, we're going to go out there and we're going to ignore the bombers. We're just going to go in and we're going to pull the fighters down uh, and see who's the first idiot to, to jump us out there. Um, so it's, uh, I think there's some, some fascinating tactics that could be, could be played out that way. So, so Rob, when you come over and give up your check your six world and, and join us over in blood red skies, uh, hey, <laughs> we'll absolutely school you with some I, of that. I, that's already happened. <laughs> I know. I know. I, and I'm glad you were on there for our, our virtual gathering of Eagles when you're in there and, and, uh, playing in the game with us. That was good. And I'm wild. ready to fly a, a zero or a wildcat. Well, funny, you should bring that up. So. Well, I will say this to the, the wider community. Uh, we asked Warlord Games if we could release uh, Pacific stuff in the virtual tabletop sim world. And we got a little bit of the teeth suck. But what I think is going to come out next is Korea and MIG Alley. I think that will get a virtual release next to kind of say, all right, here's your World War II starter set. Here's your Korea starter set. Uh, virtually, go play those things. And when we all get out of this pandemic uh, and can afford to touch each other's models and dice and, <laughs> and cough on each other across the table, uh, then then we'll be back to playing those uh, the Midway games. But we'll see. They, they can always surprise me, and I, and I throw it out to the listeners. Uh, I, it, is, it is not inconsequential, the amount of feedback that gets to Warlord that makes a difference. So when their executives hear from all the gamers that they want to be able to play digitally and play Pacific Theater, uh, that carries a lot of weight. So send them emails, comment on social media. Um, please don't tell them how wonderful the Lead Pursuit podcast is. They won't believe you anyway. They know what a bunch of douchebags we are. Uh, but no, but they're they're a great company to partner with, and they uh, they treat us very well. So Kevin, what's next on your slate? Are you going to stick with World War II or back to Raven? I think uh, Flip is going to be promoted to uh, Rear Admiral. 
and uh, and he's going to go to sea again. Uh, I, I think that uh, I want him to command a strike group in the Mediterranean, uh, European theater, and uh, we might we might travel uh, the length and breadth of uh, the seas uh, around Europe and, and above Europe, and uh, maybe uh, uh, the Russian Navy might make an appearance. So uh, that's that's what I think uh, we have in store. For that sounds great. And and I'd love to see another World War II book, but Flip is uh, that's awesome too. Thanks. I think that's and you know another World War II book is uh, I'm thinking about that. Uh, naval aviation, of course, is is in my wheelhouse, and and there are other uh, there's some other terrific battles in, in World War II involving naval aviation, but but none can compare to the drama and and the importance. What was at stake at Midway? Well, well, if thank- you really feel like you want to tell a humorous story, you can always write the uh, accounts of Guadalcanal and the Cactus Air Force and the poor Navy squadrons that got left by their carrier-born brethren <laughs> and assigned to the Cactus Air Force and suddenly found out how the Marines wage war. <laughs> exactly, yes. Unwilling volunteers. Exactly. Yeah. Congratulations for donating your aircraft to the United <laughs> States Marine Corps. <laughs> You're now part of the Cactus Air Force. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us, Kevin. I really enjoyed uh, Silver Waterfall and learning uh, more about Midway and, and bringing it to a personal story of the key characters on both sides really had a, had a great impact. Thanks again. Well, Rob, thank you very much. It's, it's great to be on the podcast. Uh, uh, the books are, are all on Amazon, one stop shop, and, and they're all in, uh, in uh, Kindle or print or, uh, or audiobook now. And uh, I'll, I'll keep going. But I, I thank you very much for having me on and, and uh, a great wide ranging discussion about uh, the Pacific War and, and Midway and, and, uh, and all things flying. Thank you. Well, thanks for being on. I really appreciate it. Uh, obviously we're looking forward to seeing what you uh, write next. And, and obviously I found you through Kindle on Amazon. What, what is the easiest way for people to find you either on social media or to follow your developments rather than just waiting for the next book to hit the uh, Kindle? Sure. Uh, Kevin Miller, author, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Uh, and then uh, my website is also kevinmillerauthor.com. Uh, drop me a note. Uh, if uh, if you like what you read, the uh, reviews are, are very helpful, and uh, and people leave them on on Amazon and also on Goodreads. Uh, they uh, just you know people uh, you know put the word out in podcasts like this, uh, um, and uh, that is very much appreciated. I, I'm so uh, pleased that, that people are learning about um, modern aviation through my books, and then about a great battle through uh, the Silver Waterfall. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining us on the podcast, Kevin and Rob. Thanks for uh, helping put all this together. It's always good to have our brothers from uh, the Fights On team uh, back in there. And I've got your uh, Midway Island terrain all painted up. So this uh, week at Twisted Lords Convention, hopefully we'll be uh, doing a few Midway bombing raids. Thanks. Can't wait to see the pictures. Yeah, should be good. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Absolutely. Absolutely.